in Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And I will bring my computer up and we can hopefully follow along uh, via the PowerPoints. We have been working our way through this psalm and I believe that we'll have opportunity to finish this great psalm before the end of the year. And it has been a joy to uh, work through this psalm stanza by stanza. And we have referred to it as the Mount Everest of the Bible, borrowing that particular title to this psalm as it is the longest chapter in the Bible and borrowing this term from a uh, commentary, a uh, Bible scholar. We see the paragraph and the Hebrew letter that begins each verse of this stanza, and that would be the Hebrew letter K-O-P-H. Kof is how we would pronounce it in our English, uh, but I don't know how that would be pronounced necessarily in Hebrew, but K-O-P-H would be the first letter of each verse of this stanza in the acrostic of Psalm 119. We're going to look first of all in verse 145 how the psalmist prayed, how the psalmist prayed. Notice in verses 145 through 147 how many times he uses the word cried. I cried with my whole heart, verse 145. I cried unto thee, verse 146. And then in verse 147, I prevented the dawning of the morning and cried. How did he pray? He prayed with a pleading. Sometimes the word cry is translated shout or call. It is the idea of a sincere prayer from the heart. It implies pleading and a painful utterance. Spurgeon said, he who has been with God in the closet will find God with him in the furnace. How many times have we cried out to the Lord? I would say that I should do it more often than I do. I would have to fall under conviction. I am under conviction as I have studied this and thinking about the number of times that I have cried out to the Lord. There have been many times in my life where I have cried out to the Lord. But I think of how I should do it more often and not just in times of great distress because we need the Lord whether we're on the mountaintop or whether we're in the valley. Whether we're in a time of crisis or in a, in a time of calm, we should be crying out to the Lord. We see the psalmist using this three times in these three, first three verses of this stanza. We understand that it's not always verbal. The word cry, again, can be translated call or plead or shout. And a couple of those words in particular would imply a verbal loud outburst with the voice, but not necessarily is it always going to be a verbal cry. There are times where it's an agony of the heart, where it's a silent prayer, but there is a deep internal pleading with the Lord, and it not, isn't necessarily verbalized, which makes us think of James 5 and verse 16, the effectual, fervent prayer 
of a righteous man availeth much. In Psalm 34, in verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. Now, we've had four children grow up in our house, and all of them were babies at one time, and they all knew how to cry. One in particular knew how to cry several times during the middle of the night for at least eight weeks. I think I ran on three or four hours of sleep for at least eight weeks. And I would go into the office each day, and I think I was half zombie because I was so out of it from being up because this particular child would wake up in the middle of the night and would cry and then not go to sleep for another hour. And so we would rock on the rocking chair and everything that we could do to try to get this particular child who shall remain anonymous to get this individual to go back to sleep. There was a cry. And if you have all, all of you who have been parents have experienced this, and they are desperate for food, to have their diaper changed, maybe they have a tummy ache. Uh, later on, we found out that this particular child that was colicky also had some acid reflux, we're, we're assuming, uh, because the others ended up uh, having uh, acid reflux as well. But there would be sometimes pain, discomfort. Uh, again, the diaper needed to be changed. But sometimes it was just a cry because the child wanted to be held. But usually, usually the cry means I need something, I need help. Obviously the baby can't change his or her diaper. Obviously the baby... Uh, cannot uh, get up and go to the bathroom on, on his or her own, all right? I mean, there, there's a need there. There's a desperate cry for help. And we, I, I believe that we need to see ourselves much more often in a dependent state upon our Lord and Savior. I think many times we are way too self-sufficient. And we think that we have it all figured out and we can make life work the way we want to on our own strength and we can make enough money and we have our own ideas and our own blueprints and we can engineer our own life. And I think too many times we are way too full of ourselves and think we can figure out things on our own. But really, we need to be crying out for the Lord, pleading for his help. That is how he prayed. But then we also see in verse 146, we see what he prayed for. Notice he says, save me. I cried unto thee, save me, and I shall keep thy testimony. Save me from what? He doesn't say specifically. He does uh, make a reference to those who follow after mischief down in verse 150. So there's definitely enemies. We're again assuming it's David who wrote this psalm. We know that there has been reference to the wicked, to the evil, and we know that there have been other times where he has referenced an enemy or a challenger, a difficulty. He's crying out for God to deliver him from sin, from dangers, from temptations, from enemies. He desired to be rescued so that he could live an obedient and productive life for God, I shall keep thy testimonies. He wasn't crying out 
to be rescued so that he can keep doing his own thing, going his own way, so that he could make it to his next status or standard of lifestyle, so that he could grow his net worth or achieve a particular title. And again, not necessarily saying that all those things are wrong, but that's not what he's asking for salvation from or for, so that he could go back to his own way of living and try to be successful in his own eyes. No, he's crying out for God to rescue him, to deliver him, to save him, so that he could keep God's testimonies, so that he could be a testimony, so that he could live an obedient life, so that he could be productive for the Lord. Similar to how Hezekiah prayed when he was sick and nigh unto death and the Assyrians were coming to conquer and Hezekiah prayed for, for his own life and he desired so that he could continue to serve the Lord, to live for God, to do more for the Lord. And it reminds me of what Paul prayed in Philippians 1 and verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We are made to live. Dan, is, Dan Clark has helped that with us, helped us with that in Sunday school and the amazing complexities of life, like in the Sunday school lesson this morning and just the overwhelming complexity of the human body and the number of cells and all of those terms I cannot even remember that were going on upon the screen in mitochondria, and I don't remember everything that, that was, was talked about. But our bodies are built to live. So there is a natural desire to live. We don't say, okay, I can't wait to leave so I can go out on I-65 and start dodging semi-trucks tonight. And we don't do that. We don't look for opportunities to die. We look for opportunities to live, to survive. I understand that there is high rates of suicide and there's a, a suicide prevention line and there's much effort that's being done to reduce the number of suicides because it's against our nature, it's against our normal will to seek death. We want to live, but why do we live? My life is not my own. My life belongs to Jesus Christ. We are to live for him. We are to desire to live so that we might serve the Lord, that we might fulfill his, <coughs> excuse me, fulfill his will, so that we might be able to share the gospel with others, that we might be able to serve and sacrifice in God's service so that we can live for him in a more obedient and productive way. We see the heart of the psalmist here who desired to live to be saved from whatever this danger, this sin, this temptation, this, this enemy, so that he could keep God's testimonies. We think of the hymn, Amazing Grace, the many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. T'was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. We need to depend upon his grace and desire for his grace and his mercy to serve him more and to serve him better and to fulfill his will for our lives. Romans 7 and verse 24, we even see Paul's desire to be delivered from the body of this death, but he understood as he struggled with his own sin nature 
O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He understood who would deliver him? Christ. So when he wrote in Philippians 1, verse 21, by the inspiration of God, for to me to live is Christ and to, and to, die, his, and to die is gain, he wasn't saying, oh, I hope I can live longer so that I can continue to live in the sins of my flesh. No. His desire to live, even in spite of the spiritual struggle, was so that he could be delivered from, the body, from this body of death and to have spiritual victory and to bear fruit for the Lord and to serve God in a holy and obedient, productive life in the will of the Lord. So then we come to verse 147. We've seen already in verse 145 how he prayed. Verse 146, what he prayed for. Verse 147, when he prayed. He says in verse 147, I prevented the dawning of the morning and cried, I hoped in thy word. When did he pray? He references the dawning of the morning. Now commentators have in reading some different commentaries, commentators have struggled a little bit, I think, in interpreting exactly what the psalmist is saying in this particular phrase from the Hebrew language. It seems to indicate that it was a long night of prayer. I prevented the dawning of the morning. Okay, Understanding that the word prevented there has to do more with an eagerness, an anticipation. So it appears that he's praying during the nights and there is a season of prayer that goes on and on and on through the night, knowing that the morning is coming and he's going to have to get busy in the things that he has to do that day. But he has such a burden and such a desire to know God and to plead with God and to pour his heart out to God that the night is long in prayer. Ever had nights like that? Tossing and turning? You have things on your mind? I know sometimes for me, I I hate waking up in the middle of the night because I have a terrible time getting back to sleep because I'm thinking about all the different things that I have to do the next day or I have people on my mind. I have people on my heart. I find myself praying for them. I find myself in prayer. Sometimes it's for my own family. Many times it's for people in the church. Uh, We paced the floor on Friday. At least I found myself having a hard time sitting still on Friday night as we were watching on Life 360 as Emily and Chandler were driving home. (laughs) I was was struggling uh, to... We couldn't sleep. We all stayed up. And uh, we were watching Life 360 and I was doing my, my pacing back and forth. But there's the, the long nights of prayer. There's also maybe a possible reference here to being up, just being up early and seeking God early. The emphasis, yes, there's mention of morning. Yes, there's a time concept here. But it's really more than just about time, the time of day. Though there is definitely an aspect of that here. But really what I want us to consider is the devotion, the sacrifice, the urgency, and the earnestness. To give up sleep, to be up early. One of the hardest things to do is to get up early. Some of you have 
gone to work early for years. Maybe you have animals around the farm, around the house. Some of you had early uh, routes or jobs, and it was 4 o'clock, 4.30 in the morning, and you're out the door, and you had an early shift at work or whatever you had to do around the farm or around the house. It's tough sometimes when that alarm goes off and we want to hit snooze. I'm a little bit of a snooze hitter, but I'm still the only one that, I'm the only, I'm the only early bird in the house. I love mornings. Um, I sometimes tell the kids, they, or, or even Kelly to some degree sometimes, because she's not an early bird like I am, but you miss some beautiful sunrises. I talk about Indiana sunsets and sunrises. They are very beautiful. We've had some beautiful sunsets looking out over uh, the River Valley and across Purdue's campus and looking out. We've had some beautiful sunrises. But there's some beautiful, we've had some beautiful sunsets. We, we have some beautiful sunrises as well, even recently with the change in time and uh, even taking the, the dog out for a walk this morning before church and just looking out over and, and seeing uh, the sunrise and just the idea of getting up early. It takes discipline, doesn't it, to wake up, to get out of bed, and to devote ourselves to prayer, to Bible study. I know some of you have to, to go off to work, or you did that for years. But the emphasis, the point that the psalmist is really trying to emphasize is the devotion. His heart was so in devotion to the Lord that he was willing to sacrifice sleep to get up early. We see this even in Psalm 88 and verse 13. But unto thee have I cried, O Lord, and in the morning... Shall my prayer prevent thee? Again, the word prevent there meaning anticipate, to meet with. The idea of having such a desire to meet with the Lord that we are willing to give up life's conveniences, give up sleep when our worries and our anxious thoughts multiply within us. The psalmist says in Psalm 55, thy consolations delight my soul. And we see that devotion from the psalmist here. And I couldn't help but think of our own Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who in the morning rose up, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. This is the Son of God who communed with his Father. He prayed. He had communion with Within, isn't that just a hard concept for our little minds to understand how there was communion within the Trinity? One God, three persons, and here's the Son of God communing perfectly with the Father, and yet as, a, as the incarnate God, he gets up early and communes with his Heavenly Father. And, and it's just we see again the devotion, the desire to be close to the Lord. And then we see in verse 148 how long he prayed. We see sort of a repetition here. Mine eyes prevent the night watches that I might meditate in thy word. So we see a little bit of repetition, the idea of anticipation, of hastening, uh, and that word prevents. He desired the solace of the night and the early morning in order to pray and meditate upon God's word. One commentator by the name of Melville said it this way when it came to Study of God's word, meditating upon God's word. What a much larger book it must be than it seems. In place of having exhausted it, the royal student speaks as though there were more work before him than he knew how to compass. We never exhaust the depths 
of the riches of God's word. We come back to sometimes the same passages over and over and over, and we drink from the same well over and over and over, and God's word continues to refresh and to satisfy and to meet the needs of the soul. I don't know what your opinion is. I have my opinion for what it's worth of the whole LEAP project and the aquifer underneath. And I probably shouldn't even bring it up because there's probably a handful of opinions. And if I had a show of hands, there would probably be things that uh, I see even a thumbs down already. So I've entered into dangerous territory. But there's all the debate about how much water is going to be available underneath the Wabash River and that aquifer. Um, we can argue about how much water they're going to take and if that aquifer is going to replenish itself fast enough, and on and on and on we go. But the well of life found in the Word of God and in Jesus Christ will never run out. It will constantly be replenished and will be for all eternity. All glory to God for that. A deep desire and recognition of one's need for devotion to God in his word. We see again that devotion of the psalmist. And what a rebuke it is again to us that we don't have that kind of devotion for God. We have devotion to lots of things. We set our calendars, our clocks. We set aside time during the week probably for lots of different things. We mark our calendars maybe for our favorite program or our favorite ball team and on and on we could go. We devote ourselves to a lot of things. But do those devotions for other things come between us and our God? Are they in violation of the first commandment? Or do we seek him first like we should? Is he preeminent? We see the psalmist's devotion to God and to his word. And then we see what he pleaded in verse 149. Notice he says, Hear my voice according unto thy loving kindness. That word loving kindness is in the Hebrew the word hesed. And it has to do with the loyal love of God. It has to do with the mercies of God that he extends to us. His loving kindness, his loyal love that we don't deserve. And notice in this particular verse, he says voice. So there is an audible prayer and it's an appeal to God's loving kindness, to God's mercy. Hear my voice according unto thy loving kindness. I don't deserve to even be heard. I climb toward you on my knees I, I'm, I'm, I'm bothered by this view of worship today that basically makes God not much better than a celebrity or a superstar that we celebrate all the time. Do we exalt our God? Yes. Do we reverence our God? Yes. Do we see him high and lifted up? Yes. But where does that put us? That puts us on our knees. That puts us on our faces before a holy God. That reveals our unworthiness. It should humble us. And so many times I see worship that looks more like celebrating a victory on a football field or a basketball court and treats our God as if he's just a national championship or the winner of the World Series. And I believe our God deserves far more reverence than that. 
Here we see the psalmist appealing to God's mercies, his loving kindness. And it's only because of God's loving kindness that we are even saved. It's only of his mercies that we are not consumed. So there's an awareness of his own unworthiness and even of the imperfections of our own prayers. How many times do we feel like we can't even express the words? We can't even put it all together. Our prayers just seem so insufficient. And aren't we thankful for the intercession of the Holy Spirit? Who we read in, in Romans 8 and verse 26, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself or himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. He speaks in this verse here in verse 149 of being quickened according to thy judgment. The judgment there, of course, is a reference to God's word, his decrees, his verdicts. So with a desire for God's judgments to make him holy, to quicken him, make him alive in holiness, in zeal for the Lord, in a passion for the Lord that results in holiness, he seeks certainty of knowing God's will and wisdom to act accordingly and in fullness of his obedience to the will of God. That's what he pleaded. And then what happened in verses 150 to 152? They draw nigh that follow after mischief. They are far from thy law. So we see that there was pressure, there was opposition from the wicked. We see the enemy drawing nigh, as we have seen before in this particular psalm. And again, we know some of David's biography and some of the pressures he faced, even from King Saul himself, who chased him like he was some wild animal in the wilderness because of King Saul's jealousy over David being anointed and being chosen to ascend to the throne after Saul. We don't know if he's referencing Saul or if there's some other enemy. He experienced the pressure and the opposition of the wicked, and the wicked follow after what? They follow after mischief. This word mischief here has to do with criminal activity. It's even referencing lewd activity, evil plans. Are we not dealing with that all around us? Do we not feel the pressure and the opposition from the wickedness of the world around us with their criminal activity? And they seem to get away with it sometimes. Is there not an abundance of lewdness in our culture? It's just perverted. Everywhere you go, it seems like. You are assaulted with lewd, perverted types of images and activities. Evil plans. And he says, they draw nigh that follow after mischief. These lewd, evil plans, this criminal activity. Because they are far from God's word. But what does the psalmist remind us of? Thou art near, O Lord. God is nearer to us than our enemies. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. We can lay hold of this truth. Isn't it good to know that no matter what our enemies plan against us and assault us and challenge us and oppose us, they're ultimately opposing God and his word. But isn't it great to know that God is nearer to us than our enemies? Thou art near, O Lord. He references 
Thy commandments are truth. Once again, this reference to the truth, the eternal realities of God's word, and there is confidence in knowing, claiming, and resting in the eternal realities of God's word. He found his strength, confidence, and peace in the Lord. There's a song, I believe it's based on the book of James, where if we draw nigh unto the Lord, what is the promise? That he will draw nigh unto us. And it goes like this, make me know your presence, Lord, when I feel so alone. You know each trial and testing pain, the hurt that is unknown. Oh, why can I not see your hand so firmly guiding me? Oh, how can I untrusting be when God is near? When God is near, all the world seems far away. When God is near, every fear is set aside. When God is near, how can I stray? How can I falter? I'll stay upon the altar. I know my God is near. May we find ourselves drawing nigh to the Lord and then experience him drawing nigh to us and finding our strength, our confidence, and our peace in the Lord. Verse 152, as we come to a close, concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. This assurance lasts how long? Forever. The rebates expire. The subscriptions expire. Doesn't it just aggravate you when you get a gift card and you forget about it? You stick it in your wallet or you put it someplace and you open up a drawer and then you call the number Sorry, expired on such and such a date. You know, your balances cannot be achieved or, re, or uh, whatever it says. Don't you hate that? But we see that concerning God's testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. His grace and his mercy never expires. We can find strength and confidence and peace in the Lord, both now and for all eternity. And we give God the glory for that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time and your word. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. And we give you praise and we thank you, Lord, for your love for us, your loving kindness, your mercies that are new every morning. May we rest in those and be humbled by those and bow before you, finding our strength, our confidence, and our peace in you. Bless now our time of fellowship and Thank you for this food that you have provided for us, and thank you for this Thanksgiving season. May we be truly grateful and give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We will close tonight with To God Be the Glory. Stanza number one of number 79 in our hymn books. Number 79 in our hymn books. Derek's going to come and lead us in this song. If we'll stand together and sing To God Be the Glory.
Thank you so much for your faithfulness, and it's been a joy to be together in the Lord's house today. We have pie and cookies in the fellowship hall, and you are welcome to join us and stay a little while in fellowship together. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask Drew Bishop if he'll close us in prayer, but I do want to give Bob and Leah an opportunity to get a head start. Please go right ahead, and you can head up the line. Um, if the two of you want to head out and uh, anyone else who would like to get a head start um, that uh, can do so, uh, that, needs to, that needs to do so. Um, <laughs> and a uh, reminder to the children, I know we're not doing a full pitch in, but a reminder to the children of taking the smallest piece you possibly can the first time through and then come back for more. Anyway, don't put the whole thing of the whip topping on your one piece of, anyway. And save me a piece of pumpkin pie, please. <laughs> anyway, um, please, Bob and Leah, you're welcome to, to head back. And anyone else who uh, needs to do so, we want you to give you a head start and uh, allow you to go through the line. There should be, I believe, two serving lines, and then there uh, should be plenty of seats. And hope that you'll be able to stay around for a little while and fellowship together as uh, we look forward to this Thanksgiving holiday. Drew's going to uh, close us in prayer, and then if you ask the Lord's blessing upon the food as well. Lord, we thank you for this day and the opportunity to be here to praise you and worship you and hear from your word. Uh, we thank you for this 